in First John 3. And um, if you need a Bible, we'd love to get you one so you can follow along with us. So we have some Bibles available, I think, somewhere. But uh, if you need a Bible, let us know. But we're in 1 John chapter 3. If you do need a Bible, again, raise your hand. We'll get you one. We have some guys in the back. There we go. There they are. 1 John chapter 3. While you're turning there, uh, just so you know, 1 John's a little book. Five chapters. Uh, is most likely the last book of the Bible written by John. So let me just kind of catch up to speed on what we've been doing, where we're at, kind of the point of First John, why we're doing this. Uh, I want to remind you guys, John. John is one of the 12 disciples, one of the originals. John wrote the Gospel of John, obviously. John called himself the disciple whom Jesus loved. I love that about John. John is writing about Jesus and goes, remember the disciple whom Jesus loved? Yeah, that's me. That's how John viewed himself, all right? And, and John was a guy, we're told, who, throughout church history, a guy named Eusebius told us that John, he was exiled to Patmos. He wrote the book of Revelation. He was actually taken back into what we'd call modern-day Turkey or Asia Minor. And this is where John wrote first John. So John is old. John is the last living disciple. John is the last living of one of the original 12 disciples, John walked with Jesus, talked with Jesus, ate with Jesus, hung out with Jesus. And the point of 1 John, the first four verses, he says, this fellowship I've had with God, you can also have. John had a unique relationship with Jesus. Imagine, again, eating dinner or going on a walk with God of the universe in the flesh. And John says, I had that and you also can have that. I had that and I want to welcome you into that. And so John is basically writing this book saying, hey, here's how you can know you have fellowship with God. So we've talked about, if you've been with us, I'll just remind you, we've talked about this word know, K-N-O-W, a lot. This word know, John writes, I write this so you can know, you can know, you can know by experience, you can know firsthand that you have a relationship with Jesus. So if I had to summarize kind of the book of 1 John, like a question form, it's how do you know? How can you know? How can you know? How can you know what? How can you know you walk with Jesus? How can you know this is real? How can you know you're not just faking it? How can you know you're not just kind of coming to church and just kind of doing the Christian thing? How can you genuinely know you've been born again, you're walking with God, you know God, you have a firsthand relationship with God? John has basically taken this little book to try to answer that question. Here's how you can know. You can know that you know Jesus. You can know that you can walk with Jesus. You can know him firsthand. So this is kind of John's heartbeat. And, and we talked about last week how we are children of God. We were in 1 John 3, verse 1 through 3. We talked about how we were adopted into the family of God. Uh, my wife and I were at a, a big event yesterday for four kids. Four kids is a foster care, really ministry. Um, and they have foster care. They also have adoption. And you're watching story after story of these, of these kids who have either been fostered or a lot of times adopted into certain families. And how once they were adopted, their whole, their whole persona changed. Like, it took a while, obviously, but after a while, they realized, oh my gosh, I'm not going to go hungry. They're not going to kick me out. They're not going to abuse me. They're not going to neglect me. And you start, you slowly start, you're hearing these testimonies. We're listening to these testimonies last night, person after person, who realized, wait, this person's going to love me regardless of my attitude. These parents are going to love me for who I am. I mean, they're, not, they're not used to that. And we talked about the idea of adoption and being adopted in the family of God. We have a new name. We have a new inheritance. We have a new family. There's so much that comes with adoption. And now kind of leading into verse 4, we're going to be in 1 John chapter 3, verse 4. But he's talking about now moving forward, here's what it looks like to be a child of God. So usually over time, you're going to take on your parents' characteristic traits in some way. So this is kind of what John is talking about. Now let me just kind of warn you guys tonight. Uh, tonight's text, verse 4 through 18, uh, so it's a little confusing. It might be a little confusing. Some might say this is the most confusing part of 1 John. Uh, it might be a little frustrating. 
maybe if you read First John 4, you might hear me talk and go, I don't like that. I don't agree with that. Let me just say this. That's probably good. All right. Uh, I know that we don't always like that, but I'm thankful the Bible doesn't always agree with me. If the Bible always agreed with me, something would be wrong. I'm thankful the Bible challenges me. If the Bible cannot agree with everyone and everyone on diff- every different topic, right? Sooner or later, you can be confronted with something in the Bible and go, I don't like that. And when that happens, what do you do? Who wins? <laughs> do you say, well, you change. And some people try to change the Bible. Or do we say, you know what? It might not be, but obviously, uh, God has something bigger in mind here. God sees something I, I don't see. And so, again, I'm thankful the Bible doesn't always agree with me. And this might offend some of you or rub you the wrong way. John is a kind of a black and white guy. He speaks in really bold statements. And I'm so thankful for that. So we're just going to do this. We're going to read 1 John chapter 3, verse 4. Go through verse 18. We'll pray and we'll dive more into the text today. So let's read 1 John chapter 3, verse 4. <clears throat> Remember, John just writes about how we're children of God. Verse 3, just to remind you, John says, Everyone who has this hope in Jesus purifies himself just as Jesus is pure. Verse 4, let's keep reading. John says, Whoever commits sin also commits lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. And you know that he was manifested. You know that Jesus was made known to take away our sins. And in him there is no sin. Amen? It's good. Whoever abides in him does not sin. Whoever sins has neither seen Jesus nor known Jesus. Little children, John's old, remember? He can say that. Let no one deceive you. He who practices righteousness is righteous, just as Jesus is righteous. He who sins is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. For this purpose, the Son of God was manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. Whoever has been born of God does not sin, for his seed remains in him, and he cannot sin because he's been born of God. Don't worry, we'll talk about that. Verse 10, in this, the children of God and the children of the devil are made known. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is he who does not love his brother. For this is the message that you've heard from the beginning, that we should love one another, not as Cain, who is of the wicked one who, and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his works were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not marvel, my brethren, if the world hates you. It's a good verse. Verse 14, we know that we have passed from death to life because we, we love the brethren. He who does not love his brother abides in death. Whoever hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love. How do we know love? Because Jesus laid down his life for us. And we also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoever has this world's goods, goods and sees his brother in need and shuts up his heart from him, how does the love of God abide in him? My little children, let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth. How many of you feel like we just close and be like, all right, go home, <laughs> practice this? Uh, that's kind of how I feel. I'm going to try to do my best to just break this down and just kind of let the Lord speak tonight. All right, just join me. Let's pray and give this to the Lord. Father, we come to you. We just ask that you'd be here and that you'd speak and that you would clarify God. Jesus, we ask that there be no distractions, that our focus could be on you, Jesus. Lord, help us really see and understand what it is you're saying to us. God, I ask, as, as we talked about last week, let there be a purity in our lives, God. Let there be a difference, God, in our lives. We hope that when the world sees us, they see you, Jesus. Lord, let's not just talk about grace, but we ask that grace would just transform us and make us more like your son. And so, again, we thank you, God. We would not be here if it wasn't for your son who took away the sins of the world. And so we ask that you just speak and move in this place in your wonderful name. Amen. 
So when I was in high school, I've mentioned this, and you'll probably hear more, and I'm sorry, but I, I grew up playing basketball. I liked basketball. That was kind of my thing. Uh, as my sophomore year of high school, my sophomore year, I was in 10th grade, we had, a, uh, we had a guy on our team who was seven feet tall. He was one of two seven-footers in Orange County. So I'm from Southern California, Orange County, California. There's another seven-footer. He played at like modern day, which is like a really good school at sports, but we had, we had the other one. All right, there's two in Orange County. We had one seven-footer, and his name was Justin. I think he's like Vanderwall. He's kind of like a Swedish Viking. I mean, big, blonde-haired, just beast, who was the most awkward human being you'd ever watch walk around. Uh, he probably grew like a foot in like four years, and just because his body couldn't handle that. So, played basketball with this guy, and it, it really did, it was fun, you know, to watch our games, even like look back, because he kind of looked like you're playing basketball with the praying mantis, just super like lanky, and just didn't fit, kind of uncoordinated. I, I can't tell how many times I'd pass on the ball, slip through his hands, just hit him in the face, and I would get the turnover. Um, hated that. But uh, this guy was a great guy, lovable guy, super fun guy. I think he had two dunks all, all his whole high school career. He had two dunks. I mean, his wingspan was 7'3". I mean, this guy was so lanky. I mean, he barely had a jump to dunk, and he had like two dunks for his whole four years. Anyways, uh, I remember when I first met his parents. It was like a parent night or something like that. And I remember it was like everyone's parents are there and he, they come in the gym. No one had to introduce me to Justin's parents, right? When Justin's parents walked in the gym, like, oh, there's Justin's parents. His mom's 6'6 six, six, and his dad's 6'10. No one had to say, hey, those are Justin's parents. You kind of had to like ask some people, like, where's your mom? Like, you didn't have to ask where his mom was, all right? You could just, you could just see, anyone could see at any point in time. And it's funny, you know, his little brother was like in fourth grade. He's about my height. I mean, he was just big family, right? And the idea is like, obviously with family, we carry certain characteristics, certain traits. It's going to be passed on. If, if we were to look at pictures of your family right now, or you look at my family, we would see similar traits passed on. It's kind of fun. You have a two-year-old. He's back there. We might hear him yell later, but it's fun to look at him. He looks just like my wife. He's a mini clone of my wife. He's a boy. No one thinks he is when they meet him, but he's a boy. But he looks just like my wife. Long, blonde hair. Super fun. Uh, but the only thing that might resemble me is like his blue eyes and bow legs. That's probably it. Um, but you'll see like similar traits between people. Again, I could look at your family. You could might look at my family. The point is this. Whenever there's a family, there's going to be a family resemblance. Whenever there's a family, there's going to be family traits and characteristics. Here's what John is basically saying. He's saying if you are a son or daughter of God, there's going to be some resemblance. If you're a son or daughter of God there's going to be some traits that you carry. Now, yes, we've been adopted into the family of God, but the more you spend time with people, the more, in a sense, you become like them. The, the, more, the older I get, I'm like, I can't believe I just made that noise. My dad used to make that noise. I, like, I had a flashback like last week of some weird goofy noise I made. I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm six again. Listen to my dad make this noise. It's weird. Everyone says you become like your parents, and it's probably very true. But eventually, we see that happening. You kind of carry the traits of your family. John is basically saying this, and this is where it might get offensive. John wants to be really clear. He says, you're either a child of God or you're a child of Satan. And not a lot of people would agree with that. Because if you think about it, you're like, no, 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 I'm not, I don't believe in God. I don't believe in Jesus, but I'm not against him. Like, I'm not a child of Satan. And, and John would say, very clearly, you're either for him, you're the child of God, or you're not. And the other option is, he says, literally, verse 10, we'll throw the verse up here, 1 John 3, 10. He literally says it this way, and this the children of God and the children of the devil are made known, are made manifest. So if we're looking at the text as a whole, He's basically comparing and contrasting traits of someone who's a son of God and someone who's a son of Satan. And again, this is offensive. And maybe you take offense to that. And it's one of those things I've had to reconcile my heart. Like, I didn't always believe, I, I wasn't, I didn't, was born a born-again Christian. That just didn't happen. At one point in time, the Bible says I was an enemy of God. I was, I was a child of Satan. At one point in time, I didn't want Jesus. I didn't, I was trying to do life my way. I was trying to be my own savior. To some degree or not, we've all probably been there. The point is, you're either one of, you're one of these two. 
And this is, what, this is kind of the text we're going to be looking at. And it's kind of studying back and forth. And I'll say this. Jesus said this, you guys. In case you're like, I don't like John. Why would John say that? I can't believe you're one of the two. Jesus said this. You want to write this verse down? It's John 8, 42. Jesus said to them in John chapter 8, If God were your father, you would love me, for I proceeded from and came from God. Nor have I come of myself, but he sent me. Why do you not understand my speech? Because you are not able to listen to my word. You are of your father, the devil, and the desires of your father you want to do. Jesus said this to the Pharisees, to the religious crowd. He goes, you're of your father, the devil. So this is not like a new thing John is introducing. You're either a son of God, or he says you're a son of the devil. You're a son of Satan. And again, there's, there's kind of this compare and contrast thing happening. And so I want to look at those things. And this is kind of this text in case you know, you see this. This is almost like the paternity test. How do you know who your father is? How do you really know? You know, I, I don't watch these shows, but I've, when I was a kid and I was a little, you know, when I was like sick, like sick from school, like I'd stay home. Once in a while, you'd turn across on those daytime TV shows and it'd be like the little blurb on the bottom, who's, who's the real daddy, right? And it'd be like someone on stage, there's like two guys, like it's my son, like you're a ginger, he has black hair, there's no way. And then eventually, like, you know, the test results come out. And it's like, I'm not the dad. You're like, of course you're not. How did you not notice that? And it's always surprising and a shock to them. So n- not, I hate to say this because I'm never this way, but I've titled today's message, Who's Your Daddy? And I had to do, I've never said that. I haven't said that since I was like in seventh grade. Um, but I've had to, honestly, because again, I probably said that when I was playing basketball, blocked a kid's shot and said that. That's probably the last time I said that. Um, so that is really the text. Who's your daddy? Who's, who are you really a son of? So let's look again. We'll read verse four through nine. And let me actually throw something up here for you guys. Like I said, he's comparing and contrasting. If you want to see this, Basically, if you want to kind of get a breakdown of this book, he says either if you're son of God, there's righteousness or there's sin, and your life is dominated by one of those two. Or he's saying you have love or hate, your life is dominated by one of those two, and your life is dominated. It's, it's also displayed by action and inaction. And so you could say the left side is the son of God, the right side is the son of the devil. That's kind of the idea. Now let me just be really clear. If you are born again, it doesn't mean you can't be on the right side. And we'll talk about that. There'll be times we'll make a lot of mistakes, a lot. But the idea is, does that own my... And there'll be times you're on the right side and you go, but they can be loving and they can be... Right. Yeah, sure. But it doesn't mean they're born of God. And so John's trying to really clarify. John's trying to really make it known. John's trying to actually be really, really clear here. And, and even the way this is written in the Greek is it's trying to be as, as really clear, but for us it's confusing. So we'll look at that. So let's read verse four again. Verse four, let's just kind of read as a whole again. He says, whoever commits sin also commits lawlessness. And sin is lawlessness. And you know, you know that when Jesus was made known, when he's manifested to take away your sins, and in him there is no sin, whoever abides in him does not sin. Whoever sins has neither seen him nor known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. He who practices righteousness is righteous just as he is righteous. He who sins is of the devil, for the devil is sin from the beginning. For this purpose, the Son of God was manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. Praise God for that. Verse 9, whoever has been born of God does not sin, for a seed remains in him, and he cannot sin because he has been born of God. All right, just to review this, I know we can talk about this. This is a big question. So can Christians sin? And obviously the answer is yes. But John says a Christian does not sin, and we'll look at that. Let me just first define sin, verse 4. How does the Bible define sin? It defines as lawlessness. How do we define that? not just breaking the law of God, it's even more so, I'd say, than that. But there's an element of sin being lawless, it's breaking the law of God that says, God, I know this is your law, I know this is what you say, but I'm going to do it my way. I know you say life should be lived this way, I, I know your command is this, but I don't need th- that command. Basically, it's saying, I live by my law, I'm not going to live by your law. I'm going to live by what I think is right, not what you say is right. I live by my way in that sense. But keep going with that. I love this thought. Tim Keller, a guy I quote a lot, and I like how he writes, he says this about sin. This is how he defines sin. 
he says the concept of sin is offensive or ludicrous to many. Maybe you fall in that category. It's offensive or ludicrous. This is because we don't understand what Christians mean by the term. Sin is seeking to become oneself, to get an identity apart from God. According to the Bible, the primary way to define sin is not just doing the bad, doing the doing of bad things, but the making of good things into ultimate things. It is seeking to establish a sense of self by making something else more central to your significance, purpose, and happiness than your relationship to God. We, I, need to stop thinking as sin as that is something bad people do over there. Like them, those guys who do those things and they're on the news, they're sinners. Like, no, that is us. When good things become ultimate things, when we try to make our identity based on something apart from God, that is breaking the law of God. Because the, the Bible summed up in the law of God is this one word of love. And so the idea of like, I'm going to put myself first is self-love. It's me putting my will above God's will. And this is how the Bible defines sin in that way. But here's what verse 5 says. It defines sin, but I love verse 5. It tells us that it doesn't just stop there. Like, okay, we get it. We're all, we're all breakers of the law. We're all sinners. Verse 5, though, here's the good news. It says, and you know that he was manifested to take away our sins, and in him there is no sin. That is good news, right? Even though all of us have broken the law of God, in him there is no sin. In Jesus, there is no sin, and he was made known to take away sins. Let me just point this out. Jesus does not just forgive us of our sins. He takes away our sins. And I I love the fact that I'm forgiven, but can I tell you, I love the fact, probably even more, that he takes it away. You know, if we were to study this, and we could go more, if you want to read Romans and study the doctrine of salvation, we call that the doctrine of soteriology, but here's something I love. Jesus takes away our sins. There's three kind of components to that, if we'll throw that up here. Jesus takes away the penalty of sin, he takes away the power of sin, and he takes away the presence of sin. Let me just explain this really quick. So the pen- we've all sinned. Sin deserves some sort of punishment. Like if God is good and if God is just, he can't just wink at sin. He must punish sin. And so when we know that he punished our sin on his son. Sin was paid for. And so again, the penalty of my sin has been paid for. I don't have to be judged for my sin one day because Jesus was judged for my sin. The good news is when I sin before God, Jesus already paid for all the things I've done and I'm doing and I will do. My sin's been judged. So the penalty of sin is removed. That's, that's happened. That's happened. We would call this in the Bible just justification. You've been justified. God's declared you and I righteous. God's like you're innocent. You're righteous because of my son. The next thought of this, though, is the power of sin. Not only am I declared sinless, I'm not sinless, I'm declared sinless, but not only that, but there's this power of sin. Let's be honest, we still sin. Every day we still sin. Every day there's still things, thoughts, motives, good things I do with bad motives. There's so many ways that we can sin. The Bible says if you know to do good and you don't do it, that's sin. There's so many ways we could talk about sin, but the idea is this. Jesus came to even take away the power that sin has on us, that we don't have to be slaves to sin. You know, if I, I'm going to say this probably later, but I'll share this, share this now. If you get a chance, please, like your homework this week, if I would say anything, is read Romans 6. Read Romans 6. It talks about this idea that at one point in time, we've literally presented our bodies to sin and said, hey, sin, do whatever you want with me. You want to do this tonight? Let's do this tonight. You want to drink this? Let's go do, like, we once at one point in time presented our bodies to sin, and now he says, you're dead to that, and you're alive to Christ. Present your bodies alive to Christ, saying, hey, Christ, my body's yours. What do you want to do? I want to serve you. I want to, I want to live for you. The idea is that now, now, we, again, we will still lose these battles. We've won the war, but the idea is in Christ, we can win more and more battles. We don't always have to be a slave to sin. And we'll talk more about that. And then lastly, the presence of sin. One day, when we see Jesus, as we talked about last week in 1 John 3, 2, when we see Jesus face to face, there will be a day the presence of sin is completely removed. 
There will be, in the presence of sin can come in for, so many forms. There's no more pain, suffering, murder, rape. There's just, I mean, sin is removed in that sense from the world. It's removed from our lives. 1 John 3, 2, when we see Jesus, we will be like Jesus. There will be a day the presence of sins removed. Here's the thing. Jesus didn't just come to forgive sins, but verse 5 says to take away sins. He's going to take away, the, he took away the penalty. He's still right now, we call that justification. The power of sin is sanctification. We're being made more like Christ. And this idea of the presence of sin is glorification. You have justification, sanctification, glorification. This idea that we'll see him, we'll be like him. And I love what John says, and in Jesus there is no sin. Remember, there were people going around defining Jesus really poorly. There are people saying, well, Jesus didn't really rise again physically. These Gnostics and this Gnostic heresy that was happening in the church, Jesus didn't rise again physically. He was just a spirit or emanation from God. So constantly in 1 John, John's trying to, not redefine, but John's trying to define Jesus clearly. And he says, and in Jesus there is no sin. He could remove sin because he didn't have sin. He's that spotless lamb who took away the sins of the world. And so John is talking now in verse 6 and verse 8, verse 9. This is where it gets a little confusing. Let's read verse 6. He says, whoever abides in Jesus does not sin. You're like, well, uh, I do. Verse 6, keep going. Whoever sins has neither seen him nor known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. He who practices righteousness is righteous just as he is righteous. We should say righteous again. Uh, Verse 8, he who sins is of the devil, and the devil has sinned from the beginning. All right. If you and I were to slow down, read that. He who sins is of the devil. He who sins does not know him. You go, well, I still sin and I believe in Jesus. How does this work? Let me explain. The way it is written in the Greek, and I love the ESV translation of this. It does it the best. We'll throw up the verse again in the ESV. 1 John 3, 6. It says, no one who abides in him keeps on sinning. This is how it's written. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him nor known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. Here's the idea. John is trying to be really clear. If you're practicing sin, he goes, you know you're of the devil. If you're continuing in sin, so some of us, what does practice mean? Some of you maybe could be, I can't wait to get out of here saying go, go out and sin. All right, that, that might be a good sign you're of the devil. That might be a sign that since you're not born again, that you, don't have, you haven't been birthed of the Spirit of God. If you want to get good at sinning, if when I practice something, usually you practice something to get better at it. The idea of practicing sin is like, I want to get better at sinning. How can I get better at sinning? John is saying if that is the characteristics, there's no conviction, no repentance, no confession. You're just continuing to sin, that that you're a slave to this, that this is what you're, you're surrendering yourself over to this. He goes, don't let anyone deceive you. You're not of God. And I, I want to I share two sides to this, all right? Because there's, there's, this is really important, I think. Write down 1 John 1.8. 1 John 1.8. We read that a few weeks ago. He who says he has no sin is a liar, and the truth is not in him. So obviously, Christians sin. Let me just be really clear. Do Christians sin? Of course we do. Do we sin a lot? Probably too much, yes. But the idea is, am I a slave to it? Do I willingly give myself to it? Is it my master? Is there a brokenness? Is there repentance? Is there confession? Or is there not? Is it, I, I literally have had, let me just kind of be clear, like I've had a Christian call me who I've known for years and say, so I want to talk to you about something. I'm like, yeah. He's like, I just want you to know this just because I thought it'd be good for you to know and kind of hear, I want to hear your perspective. But, you know, you know, I love Jesus. You know, I believe in Jesus, but I'm sleeping with my girlfriend and I feel no conviction about that. And we, we have sex every night and it's okay. Like, it's okay for me to do that. I, I just feel like, you know, I should tell you. <laughs> like, well, first of all, the fact that you're telling me, I don't know if you feel that great about it. And he's just talking to me and talking to me. And I, honestly, everything within me is like, oh, trying to like, take a deep breath. I'm like, imagine this is my daughter. I'm like, okay, I might just murder this guy myself. Um, but he's, he's telling me this and he's going, but you, you know, we're under grace, so we can really do this. And so for me, 
I was like trying to figure out, okay, how can I talk with love and tact here, but also be really clear? And you know, Romans 6.1 says, uh, shall we continue to sin that grace may abound? God forbid, how can we who are dead to sin live any longer in sin? There's the side of it where you kind of go, listen, we are under grace. You're completely right. But those who've tasted and seen the Lord is good, those who've experienced the grace of God, Titus 2.11 says, the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us to deny ungodliness and worldly lusts, that we should live righteously, soberly, and godly in the present age. Grace teaches us to be like Christ. Grace is not this, let me just do whatever I want, because grace, 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 I'm jail, free card, grace. Like, we kind of treat grace that way. When in reality, when you've, exper- when you've experienced crazy grace that you did not deserve, it is so humbling. When someone gives you mercy, when a cop pulls you over and says, all right, let go, you're like, thank you, I'll shine your boots, I'll do anything. Like, you're so thankful. But when they give you grace, imagine a cop pulls you over. He doesn't give you a ticket, that's mercy. But imagine a cop pulls you over and says, hey, can I just like buy you lunch? That's grace. He went above and beyond. I deserve a ticket. And you're like, well, let me give you something else on top of it. When you've experienced that, that is not now let me drive even more fast <laughs> so I can get more free lunches because it's probably not going to happen that way. That's not how it works in our heart. Ideas when you experience grace, it's a humbling thing. And John's talking about this. He goes, listen, and I love how clear he is and I love what he's trying to say because there's two sides to the, our, our human heart. Some of us might be a little bit more self-righteous. Some of us might be a little bit more rebellious. Some of us might be a little more permissive. Some of us might not, might, might not be. I think we have to kind of realize, what's, what's my heart bent? So meaning this, some of you might hear this verse and you kind of go, oh my gosh, I sinned today, therefore I'm not a Christian. And like, you, you need to hear that's just not the case. You and I will continue to sin. But is, are we governed by sin? Does it rule our lives? Are we, do we present our bodies to sin? And some of you come out here the other side and go, well, I guess I can do whatever I want, and you also don't understand. Like, I love the Bible has this tension. It has these two polarizing tensions, saying, listen, you're either a slave to sin or a slave to Jesus. You either present your body to Jesus or you present your body to sin and say, what up, sin? I'll do whatever, I, whatever you want me to do, I'll do it. And so again, there's this idea of that there will be confession, repentance, there'll be brokenness over it. Again, Jesus Christ, again, we will sin, and that's why John says Jesus Christ has come to take away sin. That's why he's coming. Jesus said, I've not come for the righteous, I came for the sick. So I want to be the first one to say, hey, I'm sick, Jesus, because I know you came for the sick, so I want to be one of those. Like, we should be the first one to confess that. And John is basically stating, those who continue this and walk in this and live in this, you're deceiving yourself. If you think you can walk hand in hand with God with one hand and with the other hand, walk hand in hand with sin, he goes, you're deceiving yourself. You cannot hold on to your pet sins and not confess it or repent or make it open or bring it to light and call yourself a Christian. Well, we sin, of course. But if there's hidden sin, if there's unconfessed sin, we're deceiving ourselves. That's really the, the whole point of First John. He's like, hey, bring it to the light. God is light. In him is no darkness. Bring everything to the light. So for some of us, I'd say this. Here's where it stands for us Christians. Listen, if there's private secret sin that's unconfessed, bring it to light. Don't have to live alone with that. If there's something where you kind of realize, oh my gosh, in my life, every day, every night, I'm going back to this over and over again, and I say I confess, and I say I repent, but am I really, does anyone even know? Have I really made it known? Have I really confessed it? Or I'm just kind of, I just kind of don't like it. Where am I at? There's a side where I'd say, bring it to light. And there's another side where I'd say, listen, I'm so thankful that Jesus came to take away sins. I'm so thankful that, again, he came to take away the power of sin. If I could point out verse 8 again to you guys, look at verse 8. For this purpose, the Son of God was manifested that he might destroy the work of the devils. Not, not to, like, kind of uh, neutralize the work of the devil. He came to destroy the work of the devil. He came to destroy that. And, uh, and let me put it this way. This is probably the most epic verse in the Bible, honestly. We'll throw it up here. It's Romans 16, 20. I don't know if you've ever read this. Paul's ending Romans, and he says, and the God of peace will crush Satan under your feet shortly. 
and the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. <laughs> I love, I love Paul. Paul ends his letter like, listen, Jesus crushed Satan, and he's also going to crush Satan under your feet shortly, and the God of all grace will be with you. Amen. There's a side of this where Jesus came to destroy the work of the devil, and not just, yes, the sin of, the, but like, even for us, us, God's like, Paul says, he will crush Satan under your feet. You don't have to be bound to sin. You don't have to be a slave to it anymore. You can be free. I think that sometimes, and I'll, I want I said this with our group, I'll always like say this, read, when you read Romans, you hear Paul's battle in Romans chapter 7. Paul's like, the things I want to do, I don't do. The things I don't want to do, that's what I do. I'm going to that way. Like, the things I want to do, I just don't do it enough. The things I don't want to do, why do I always find myself doing that? And he ends Romans 7 by saying, who will deliver me from this body of death? And he says, I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. The same person who saves me from hell is the same person who saves me from me. That is what Paul's saying. Jesus doesn't just save us from hell, he saves us from us. And then he enters into Romans 8 and says, there's no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, to those who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. There's a side too where it's like, enter into Romans 8. Church, we don't have to live in Romans 7 forever. We can enter into Romans 8. I know that Romans 7 applies to all of us, and like, we're like, yes, Paul's relatable, but also Romans 8 comes after that, and he's like, you know what? You can be victorious. You don't have to be a slave to sin. You have freedom in Christ, whom the sun sets free is free indeed. But there's a side too, guys, like, have we been broken by our sin? Have we really been broken by our sin enough? Have we really meditated on, on all that God has forgiven me of and forgiven us of? Because I think we can't really kind of experience the joy fully until we realize how bad it was. Like, I need to know, I need to remind myself, God, you've saved me from so much. You're saving me from so much. You will save me from so much. God, you're so, and it makes me more appreciative of grace. I love what Charles Spurgeon says about this. He put it really well. He says, the grace that does not change my life will not save my soul. You know, if you act like, well, it's just grace. It's just grace. It's great. Because the grace that doesn't ch- change my life. You're talking about that powerful grace. It, you're saying grace that will save your soul, but it can't change your life. No, grace will not only save your soul, it will change your life. Why was Jesus made known to take away sins? I think it was Matthew chapter 1, verse 21. Before Jesus was born, the angel appeared to Mary and says, you shall call his name Jesus. Why? For he will save his people from their sins. I mean, that's just in his DNA. That's who he is. He has come to save us from our sins. Now, I want to bring this up. You go, how? How? But I'm still a slave to sin. I still sin. I still sin a lot. Look at verse 9. Whoever has been born of God, look at verse 9. Whoever has been born of God does not sin. Again, does not continue in sin. Does not persistently sin. For why? His seed, his seed remains in him, and he cannot sin because he has been born of God. What is John saying here? What is the seed? He says, you cannot sin because the seed's in you. What is the seed? 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 23. I love how it defines the seed. Look at this verse. 1 Peter 1, 23. It says, having been born again, not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible through the word of God, which lives and abides forever. See, this seed that lives in us, 1 John 3, 9, is the word of God. He says, this word of God is like a seed been planted in your soul. And know what I love about that analogy, and I don't think the Bible uses analogies like lightly in that way, because you can read Mark 4 about this. The seed is the word of God in Mark 4. The seed is the word of God in 1 Peter 1.23. Or 2 Peter 1.23. 1 Peter 1.23. This idea of a seed being planted into your soul or my soul is that seeds are gradual. When the word of God is in place in your life, guys, there's not, I planted a seed in the ground. There's not going to be a tree tomorrow. Seeds grow gradually, Right? It will take a while, and that is so encouraging. Because if someone gets saved, I shouldn't a- a- pretend like they're going to be this giant, strong tree planted by the rivers of water. Some, like, that's not going to happen overnight. 
Seeds will grow gradually. We as Christians should be patient with believers or people who just get saved and they're like, we're not where I'm at. It's like, that's good. There's a seed planted in their heart and they're going to be growing and growing. We got to encourage that. We got to till the soil. We got to, you know, pour water on it. That is is how it happens. It will be gradual. And that means I should be patient with you. You should be patient with me. You know, the other thing about a seed is this. If I plant a poppy seed, I get a poppy plant. I don't know. If I plant an apple seed, I get an apple tree. If you plant an oak tree, you get an oak tree. That's right. The idea is this. What is this word of God? This God seed has been placed in us. This God seed, 1 John 3, 9. This God seed has been placed in us. The idea is this glory of God will begin to come out. If there's this God seed planted, it's just going to come. It will take time, but it will come. You know, if I plant a little, you know, but, you know, I don't know, small, weak flower, and it's op- then I pave it with cement, it's probably not going to come out. But if I plant an oak tree and I put cement over it, it will eventually get out. It might take a while to get through that cement, but trust me, it's, it, it's going to get out. It's a strong seed. It's going to be a strong tree. And so my thing is this. We have a, a seed much more powerful than that. And guys, I don't know if this, if, I don't know what's placed over your life. If there's in depression, anxiety, fear, just what kind of sin or stronghold. And know what? It, it might keep it down for a while, but it will come out. This seed is powerful. It's much more powerful than an oak tree. All right? It can't keep it down for long. And I love 1 John 3, 9. Whoever's been born of God does not sin. Why? His seed remains in him. Sooner or later, there will, there will be victory more and more. I will not forget, there's a picture of one of our pastors from the church I used to work at, and in his office, there's a picture of a man with like a, like, and it's like fake, but like his skin being peeled off him, and it like stops at the waist. And this idea to me of just, it's almost like God just peeling back this layers of just sin, told me, you see the glory of Jesus come out more and more. That is sanctification. It's like, I just, there's daily, I need to be peeled off, and more of Christ be exposed. And so this idea that John is presenting, just to remind you, when he's saying, he, hey, you're either the son of God or you're the son of the devil. And he goes, either your life is defined by righteousness or your life is defined by sin. And again, it will be gradual because it's like a seed. But there will be, eventually there will be righteousness overpowering sin. Do we still sin? Of course we do. But that's not what will define me. Be, I'll be defined by what Jesus Christ has done for me and that will begin to change me. I'll become who I behold. I'll become who I spend time with and I'll become more like him. Let's keep going, verse 10. The next thing. He's going to compare love versus hate. Love versus hate. Saying, hey, your life's going to be marked by love or by hate. Look at verse 10. And this is where he's really clear. In this, the children of God and the children of the devil are made manifest. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is he who does not love his brother. For this is the message that you've heard from the beginning, that we should love one another, not as Cain, who's of the wicked one, and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his works were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not marvel, my brethren, if the world hates you. Verse 14, we know that we have passed from death to life because we have loved the brethren. Stop there really quick. He's basically saying, again, your life will be defined by hatred or by love. Now, I think all of us here, to some extent, no one's not a fan of love. Like, you're not going to see a bumper sticker that's like, I hate love, let's end love. Like, that's not going to happen. We're all a fan of love. We probably need to redefine love a little bit. I, I really do appreciate John, John's case study of his example of love versus hatred. Let me just remind you of Cain and Abel, all right? I know a lot of you know the story. Maybe you don't. Let me refresh you. In Genesis 4, Genesis chapter 4, you have the story of Cain and Abel. Cain is the first human ever born. Just think about that. Think about Eve. Eve 
was like growing a baby in her and was like, what is happening? I am growing a human. No one's ever done this. Is this normal? I can't imagine some of those thoughts. Like the first human ever being born. Like, okay, I guess this is what happens now. So Cain's the first human ever born. He has a brother named Abel. And the Bible actually talks about Cain and Abel even in Hebrews 11. They're mentioned in other places. But you have two brothers, Cain and Abel. If you remember the story in summary, Cain ended up killing his brother Abel. Hebrews 11 verse 4 says it this way, just so you can see it. Hebrews 11 4 It says, by faith, Abel offered to God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained witness that he was righteous. God testifying of his gifts through it being dead still speaks. Basically saying, and here's the story, remember, Cain and Abel. uh, Cain and Abel. Cain was a farmer. Abel was basically a sheep herder. Uh, One took care of the plants. One took care of the animals. Cain brings an offering. It says this in Genesis 4. He brings an offering to God. But we're told that Abel brings the firstborn of his offering. And we're told that God accepted Abel's sacrifice, but didn't accept Cain's. And that made Cain furious. And why? And when I read that too, I'm like, why? Why did you accept his, but not? It's very clear, I believe, when it says Cain brought an offering, but Abel brought the firstborn offering. One was like, I'll just bring to God kind of my leftovers. And one was like, let me bring God my first. And I'll say this, always bring your first and your best to God. Don't bring your leftovers. And I'll say this, bringing your first and best to God, it is an act of faith. Because by bringing God your first, you're saying, God, I trust you're going to take care of the rest. It is really an act of faith, faith of bringing God your first. And I'm telling you, it's also being a good steward. It's saying, God, let me bring you my first. Let me bring you my best. And it's interesting how Hebrews says, God accepted Abel's. God, God, God's like, Abel, you have the right heart. See, it's not so much what we always bring in our hands, but what do we bring in our heart? A lot of times we can do good things for God with the wrong heart. It's not really acceptable. God's like, it's not so much what you can do for me with your hands, but I want to know, is your heart in it? So again, like, I think there's two sides of worshiping God in a sense. I should bring something with my hands, but really I should bring it in my heart. Like, my heart is what God's looking at, what cares more for. And so if you remember, God accepted Abel's, didn't accept Cain's. Cain is furious by this. He's mad at God, mad at his brother. And read, I'm going to read this one verse to you. It's Genesis 4, verse 7. We'll be up here. Listen to this. God said to Cain, he says, Cain, if you do not do well, sin lies at the door and its desire is for you, but you should rule over it. What do you hear that? God's like, Cain, sin is at your door and it wants to rule you. It wants to master you, but you should rule over sin. And please listen to this. Cain and Abel both were under this idea of sin. Their parents fell. Sin came into the world. They're both people, they're both sinners, but notice that one is about to be dominated by sin and one's not dominated by sin. This is kind of going back to this idea of 1 John 3. Are you dominated by love? Or are you dominated by hate? Like, again, sin lies, I believe, at all of our doors. I believe sin, in a sense, is right. It's not hard to let sin into your life. Kind of go, come on in, sin. Like, it's not hard to get to that point. And it's desires to rule over you, but he says you shall rule over sin. I believe this is like a window into really the idea of a Christian versus not a Christian. We're all going to sin. But does sin rule over me? Do I rule over sin? And see, that's kind of 1 John 3. He's basically saying there's that contrast. One's a brother of hate, one's a brother of love. One hated his brother, one loved God. One brought the best to God. And I really think there's, this, there's that idea over and over again. And so the, or John's case study is, hey, you want an example of love and hate? Let's start from the very beginning, Cain and Abel. One hated his brother, one loved God. One is in the hall of faith, Hebrews 11. One is recognized by his great faith, one not so much. He's talked about in, in a negative way many times. But moving on, because of this, look at verse 13 in 1 John 3, verse 13. He says, Do not marvel, my brethren, if the world hates you. Was that not Abel? Did not his brother, his own brother hate him because he was righteous? 
and the idea is the world's not gonna, like the world's not gonna like this. I, I love. I think it's in John five. Jesus says, "Do you not know that the world hates me and will hate you also because I tell it its deeds are evil." Jesus is like, "The world doesn't like me. Why? Because I tell it its deeds are evil. No one likes that." There will be a side when you stand up for truth. That's why I think we try to shy away from truth because we're like, we don't want to be those guys, that group. It's like, oh, shy away from, we want to kind of embrace everything and any idea. Like, yeah, you believe two plus two is five. That's great. It's five. Why not? You know, who's to say you're wrong? There's kind of that idea kind of permeating. And I really do believe those who stand up and say, no, 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 this is truth. This is God's word. God's like, if you stand up for that, you're not going to be loved. Do not know, do not marvel if the world doesn't love you. Verse 14, we'll keep moving on. We know that we have passed, and this is so beautiful. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love the brethren. He who does not love his brother abides in death. Whoever hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Let me just say there's kind of three types of natural love and hate. If someone hates you in the world, you normally hate them back. If someone's indifferent towards you, you're kind of indifferent towards them back. If someone loves you, you kind of love them back, like you have really good taste, right? There's kind of those natural responses, then there's a supernatural response. The supernatural response is, you hate me, I will love you. The idea for a Christian is, I, Jesus says, what is it to you if you love those who love you? Anyone can do that. Non-believers can love those who love them. doesn't matter. If you love those who love you, don't be like, I'm so proud of me. He's like, no, no, but do you love those who hate you? That's how you really begin to know. I'd say when I really got, when I really believed God started working in my life around 16, 17 years old, I would say the first thing that I, I began to notice the most was probably my hatred for people started diminishing. <laughs> Like, there'd be people I would never want to be in the same room with. I couldn't look them in the eyes. I just don't want to be around them. I was, the first thing I started noticing is, God, 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 I'd be like, God, I really hate that person. Please take this hatred away. There was one guy specifically, I'm like, God, please give me love for him. And I would say, God, bless this guy's day. I was praying, like, blessing over someone I hated. But the funny thing is, over time, when I saw him face to face, I want to be like, how was your day? Like, I really cared. Because, like, I invested so much in prayer. I'm like, I really want to know if it's good because I've been praying for you. You know, and there's a side where, like, the first thing I began to see was my hatred started to turn to love. I'm telling you, this will be, this is a mark, this is, listen, this is the mark that you have passed from death to life. If you're wondering, how can I know I'm saved? Do you love people? Do you love your enemies? The person you have hatred in your heart, have you forgiven them? Have you released that debt? Have you prayed blessings over them? Have you blessed those who curse you? Have you prayed for those who use you? This is really the first sign that you have passed from death to life, John says in 1 John 3, 14. He goes, if you hate your brother, he calls you a murderer. And he says, and no, and we all know that no one has life abiding in him. The idea is, again, He's really clear, we'll get into this more at the end of three, the end of chapter four, but there cannot, you cannot say, I cannot say, God, I love you and I hate this person made in your image. Like, it cannot happen. God, I love you, the maker of all, and I hate this person you made in your image. It just can't be, it can't, those two things don't exist. And so the idea of a believer, a son of God versus not, is you love or you hate, and I love 1 John 3.16. We all know John 3.16, but we probably should know 1 John 3.16. He says, by this we know love because he laid down his life for us, and we also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. How do we know love? How do you know love? How would you define love? John says we define love by Jesus laying down his life. That's how we define love. Do you know love? He goes, if you've known this love, you'll also have this love. This love of God is poured into you into others. You'll also love others. You'll lay down your life for others. You'll, you'll, cop you'll copy and paste what Jesus has done, essentially. You know, Charles Spurgeon wrote this sermon on 1 John 3.16, and I wish I could, like, just read a sermon, even though it's in King James and no one would like it. But uh, he wrote this sermon, I thought it was cool. He, here's the title of it. He wrote, The Death of Christ for His People, off 1 John 3.16. He had three points. How great must have been our sins. How great must have been his love. How safe the believer is in the love of Christ. 
And I would think that those three thoughts alone are just worth exploring. How great must have been our sins that God needed to die, that God needed to send himself to die, and how great must have his love been. And then again, how safe the believer is in the love of Christ. There's just so much safety in that. We know that neither death, Lord, neither death nor life nor principality or power, nothing can separate us from this great love. Nothing can separate us from this great love. By this we know love. Jesus. Jesus. That's how we know love. The one who laid down his life for us. And he goes, and listen, if that love has so transformed you, it's just going to lead to you loving others. Those you've once hated, you will begin to develop love for because you're praying for them. And again, it will take time. And it is like a seed. And it is gradual. And it will not necessarily be overnight. Like, I love all my people I hated yesterday. It's like, it won't be like, it will be like a seed. But you'll see it begin to grow and grow and grow. And let me just end with this. This idea of of being a son of God or not. Look at verse 17 and 18. We're going to see the last point. But he talks about action versus inaction. So he talks about love. And obviously this kind of fits under love. But it's like, love will do something. Love will do something. Look at verse 17. He says, but whoever has this world's goods and sees his brother and shuts up his heart from him. How does the love of God abide in him? My little children, let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and truth. Gosh, if I could even just spend a moment defining deed and truth, where the church is either we're really good at loving in deed, but we're afraid of truth, or we love to share truth, but we're not so good at deed. If we could be a church that loves in deed and in truth, basically the way John is saying this, we would say is like, hey, put your money where your mouth is. You say you love God, and yet you don't give anything towards him. You say you love people, and you don't give anything towards people. He goes, you see your brother in need, and yet you shut up your heart. Does the love of God really abide in you? He goes, we can't love in word and in, in, in tongue anymore. We can't love in just speech anymore. You know, and it's true, like in marriage, some of you know, but it's like, like I tell my wife, hey, I love you. She's like, you love me, do the dishes. Like, okay, like I need to hear that, right? Like I can't just say it. I have to experience it. I have to show it. There's just that side regardless in, er- in any way of life. There has to be that. I-, I do want to point this out, church, though. Like if we could really embrace this, what if we were known for loving in deed and in truth, not one or the other? What if I could love God? What if we could love this world with truth? And we're not going to shy from truth, but what if we could also love in deed? What if we could close down, the people put up walls towards Christians, what if we could love them in deed so now we can share truth? Notice this in truth. It's so, it's so essential. You know, I'm not going to, I'm going to do this because I'm going to make her uncomfortable, but in our marriage, I've noticed, and probably you'll notice this, is there's usually someone who's more generous and someone who's not so generous, usually. If both people are always generous, that could be good, I guess, but it could also be bad. My wife is very generous, right? And I feel like in my, the last nine and a half years of our marriage, God's had grown me in generosity, and not that I'm like some stingy person, but she's very generous. You know, I remember a couple months ago you came home and just like the joy on her face was, you know, she was at Publix on the phone to her mom and she's there and she's watching this guy walk around and ask people for money. And she's watching him and he goes back to the car and his girlfriend's in the car and she's, you know, he's parked and I was just, I know we're all thinking the same thing. Was it safe? He's parked, you know, right by the front of Publix, like really close to it under lights so the people around. I'm like, were you safe? But Kimber's walking to the store and she sees the guy and he, she's like, hey, do you need food? Is that what you're asking people for? He's like, yes. She's like, we just need some, no one's given us food, no one's stopped by. She goes, well, let's go inside. So they walk inside, get some basic bare things. And he's like, man, I love this cereal. And she's like, go get it. He's like, oh, what? Seriously? Like, yeah, get it. Oh my gosh, I love these as kids. Get it. And it's cool. Like one thing after the other, just kind of got all this stuff. She walks back to the car to his girlfriend, or his girlfriend. Uh, his girlfriend's pregnant. And she, I remember, you know, you told the story. You should probably be up here telling the story. She's like, so why are you guys homeless? What happened? She said, well, I'm pregnant. My parents found out I'm pregnant and said, either abort the baby or we're going to throw you out of the house. I don't want to abort the baby, so we're going we're to keep the baby so we're thrown out of our house. 
And so, you know, my wife's able to talk to them, share that she works at four kids. <laughs> She's able to talk to them, and God's so cool that way, and even able to invite them out to church, pray with them. And when you see her come home and tell me the story, there's like a joy she's never experienced. It's almost like she's walking on clouds, right? She's like, look how God used me. Look what happened. And, and, and it's so cool. It really is. When we say it's more blessed to give through than we receive, it's funny. You hear that as a little kid, and you're like, yeah, that's a lie. <laughs> like you hear that as a kid, you're like, you just want me to give more. Like that's kind of how we hear it, and we think like they're tricking us. But when you see somebody who comes and gives, you go, really is more blessed to give than receive. You go like, would I rather receive some groceries? That would be a blessing, you know? But to be honest, like if you can be the one who gives it, and you go, oh my gosh, that's way more of a blessing. It's funny, during Hurricane Harvey, just another story because I'm funny, but during Hurricane Harvey that hit Texas, Hurricane Irma's on its way. My wife's like, hey, I think we should give money to people who've been affected by Hurricane Harvey. You know, and I like left my job at church plant. And I'm like, yeah, let's do it. <laughs> like, like let's, that's, that's smart. I'm like, how much money do you want to give? Like 20 bucks, 50 bucks? She's like, no, we need to give 100. I'm like, uh, okay, let's give 100. And no, little do we know a hurricane's coming our way. I'm like, no, like, we need the money. Like the hurricane's going to hit us. But it's funny, you see that, and I'm like, man, that is so, it is so beautiful. Like, if, if the church could be that way, where, listen, don't assume because you have it, you will be generous. That is not the case. If you're not generous while you don't have it, you won't be generous when you have it. Generosity starts, it's a heart thing, not, not a, when the hands thing. It's not how much you have. It starts really in every category. Let me just, again, God so love, he gave. There is no doubt to me that when you love something, you give. God so love, he gave. God so love, he gave. I honestly just believe this is just true in general. If I love something, I will give to it. If I were to read your bank statement, if you read my bank statement, half of it's going towards food. You're going, you love food. Like half your money goes to food. Or whatever the case may be, hobbies, sports. Like you go, you know that person loves it because of how they spend money on it. I think the Bible does talk about giving and love so much and just the idea of it because our heart is so attached to our money and God wants our heart. God's like, I want your heart. I don't want your money. But your money is way too attached to, to your, your heart is way too attached to your money. So I think the Bible talks a lot about giving and loving, not just in word, but in deed and in action because it's so attached to each other that God's like, give me your heart. You can't serve money and me. You can't. You know, I love when God said to Abraham in Genesis 12, I have blessed you so you can be a blessing. I haven't blessed you to hoard it. I haven't blessed you so you can just stick with you. I've blessed you so to flow from you. I know this might be a small gathering of people, but I hope God can bless us so we can bless others. I hope it can go through us. We've been asked about community, or we've been asked about outreach, and the truth is we work full-time. We're trying to figure out the whole outreach thing, but we really want to do it through our community groups. We really want to love and serve our city and give each community group a budget that they can love and serve the people they're going to influence because we think the best way to love is in community. We think that's the best way to do outreach is just on a consistent basis. I hope that can happen. That's my prayer for all of you who are in groups or want to be in groups. Our prayer is that we can actually really serve our city through groups. I hope that maybe, maybe for a few months, yes, we're identifying the needs of the city, but once we kind of know and kind of have that, that kind of vision from God, we need to act on it. Again, 1 John 3, 17, 18. If you have the world's goods and you see your brother in need and you shut up your heart, how does the love of God abide in you? My little children, let's not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth. It'd be time for us, I believe, if we really do love, we're going to give whatever that looks like in your life. Let the Holy Spirit apply it to your life the way he needs to tonight. But if we love someone, if we love something, if we love what God's, like, give to that. Because that's, that is the Lord. If where there's love, there's giving. Let me just end with this too. Tonight we are going to take communion. And what we're going to be reminded of is God gave so much. God gave, God did not just give us gold or silver, but he gave us the precious blood of his son. He gave us the best thing. God did not give us the second, he gave us the best. And let me just point out two verses, too, that we just read tonight. 1 John 3, 5, 1 John 3, 8. I don't know why these two verses, we can throw them up. These are the two verses that says, this is why Jesus came. Why did Jesus come? You know that he was made known, manifested. Why? To take away our sins. For this purpose that God was manifested. Why? That he might destroy the works of the devil. This is what communion reminds us of. 
Communion reminds us that he took, takes away our sins. Communion reminds us that he destroyed the works of the devil. Commun- <laughs> communion reminds me that whom the Son sets free is free indeed. You know, if I could even just leave it, we're going to have, here's what we're going to do just a little bit differently. We're going to actually have a time of two songs of worship, just a couple songs of worship. Communion's up here, it's back there. We're not going to pass it out. We're going to say, come, take it and eat it. Go back to your seat. We're going to say, if you want to get alone, get alone. If you want to worship and sing, when hold your communion, do that. Like, we want you to spend time with Jesus. This is a time to celebrate and thank God. Communion is not always a sad thing. It's a celebration thing. We, gave, we give thanks for what he's done. If I can point out something to you that I, I, this guy named Warren Gage, he used to oversee a, a seminary here in South Florida. He met with a group of pastors recently. He talked to us about communion. It was so profound. Just bear with me for one minute because I love this. When Jesus was with, was with the disciples and in instituting communion, if you guys remember, it uses these verbs, it uses these words that were used. It says Jesus took it, he broke it, and he passed it. He took it, he broke it, and he shared it, right? If you go back to the garden, when Eve was tempting Satan, and says, eat of this tree of knowledge, God knows the day you eat this, you're really going to be like him, so just eat it. We're told that she took it, she ate it, and she shared it. She passed it to her husband. And if you notice, what happened was she took it, she ate it, she shared it. What Jesus is doing, I believe, when he was instituting communion, is he's pointing us back to the garden saying, remember what was lost? Remember what was lost? Remember what was lost with some food? We took it, we ate it, we shared it, and this all of creation was just depraved. Sin came into the world. Well, guess what? I'm taking it back. I'm, I'm eating it, I'm sharing it, and I'm buying it back. Communion reminds us that what was lost in the garden was found again at the cross. It reminds us what God has done for us. And so we take communion. I know a lot of times it can be ritual. I know a lot of times it can be like out of habit, but I'm going to say get alone. Spend time with Jesus. Remind yourself why he came to take away sins and destroy the works of the devil. This is something to celebrate. This is a victory thing that we're doing here. We're reminded of victory. This is not necessarily some sad, this is awful. This is like, man, this reminds me that my God won. That on the cross, the the sins of the world are paid for. That is what this reminds us of. And so here's again what we're going to do. I'm going to pray. I'm going to ask when you feel ready, we're going to do a couple songs, but you, no pressure, no hurry. But there's communion up here. Grab a cracker, grab some juice in the back. We have another one in the back there that's closer to you if you're in the back. But just take it at your seat. This is for believers. We're doing this to remind ourselves, to remember what Jesus has done. If you don't believe in Jesus, you can believe in Jesus where you're at, and you can take this. If you, if you want to place your faith and trust in Jesus, you can do that. Communion is, is available to those who want to remember the cross. Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. So we just do this to remember him, to celebrate him. So again, this is available for you guys in the front and in the back. We're going to play some worship. If you want to get alone, if you want to stand in the back, if you just want to pray, do that, feel free. Don't leave. We're going to have a couple songs and share some stuff at the end, all right?